If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the prophet Haggai. We're still majoring on the minors. Nobody? Nobody? Come on. Aren't you glad I didn't come up with that six months ago? All right. We are, uh, we are continuing our series. We're almost at the very end of our, of our series in the Minor Prophets. Haggai, if you're using a Red Pew Bible, can be found on page 791. One more to go after this, Malachi, because we did Zechariah on Palm Sunday. Let's pray, and then we will hear from God's Word. Father in heaven, I pray that you have led our hearts to this place and that you have prepared us to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that we would hear from you right now, that we would hear from your word, that, that you would convict, and then you would lead us to our Savior, so that just as we have sung, that, uh, that, lead, that you would lead us to a place where our trust is without borders, that there is no limit to what we will trust you to see you do. That is what Haggai wanted his people to see, Lord, and I think that's what you want us to see in studying him. And so, Father, pour out your grace through the Holy Spirit now that we would receive and hear and be changed by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so imagine that, uh, imagine that you have moved into a new house, new home, and on your first afternoon there, a, a billionaire stops by, right? billionaire stops by, he knocks on the door, and he introduces himself, and he says, Hey, I just wanted to welcome you to the neighborhood. I actually own the land that your house is built on. I own this whole neighborhood. My house is, is just down the street here. And I wanted to invite you to come and enjoy uh, all, that, all that I have. I've got a great swimming pool. Kids are going to love that. I've got a huge lake. You can fish in it. You can boat on it. Uh, we're going to have regular barbecues. I have a killer Christmas party. So please, uh, please come and enjoy all that I have to offer. Again, my house is, is just at the end of the street. Um, and right, you would probably be like me. You'd be like, uh, okay, let's do that, right? Um, that, that man's presence in your neighborhood, changes everything, right? His very presence in the midst of your neighborhood changes everything. And if you, can, if you can grasp that picture, then you can begin to understand why the temple was so important in the Old Testament, right? Because here's the reality that the temple pointed to. Um, God wants to live with His people. And that right there... That truth alone should, as we say in my house, that truth alone should smoke your bacon, right? That, that God wants to live with. God wants to live with people. He doesn't want to be in some other neighborhood much nicer, right? He wants to move in with his people. And let's, and let's be honest, we do not raise the property value, okay? Uh, we don't, we don't bring a whole lot to the table. 
But God wants to live with his people. That was what he had with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was what Adam and Eve forfeited was his presence. And so beginning with Abraham, he makes this promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And over time, he builds on that promise. First, right, in the Exodus, when the people are moving across the desert, they're living in tents. Where does God live? In a tent. A huge tent called a tabernacle right in the middle of his people. And when they get to the promised land and they have a king, a righteous king named David, it's his son who builds a temple, who builds God's house. And really, the word for temple and the word for palace are the same word in the Hebrew. Okay? And so, God longs to be with, to, to dwell in the midst of his people. That's what the temple represents. Now, we know, right, that, that God is not confined to a building made with human hands. Okay? But the temple represents, it's a symbol of God's dwelling with his people. That's what the temple is, right? It's the billionaire who's moved into the neighborhood. Now, imagine, let's go back to the billionaire for a second, and you and the billionaire. Imagine that after about a year or two, well, it just, it just kind of gets old, right? The nice pool, I mean, you've seen one pool, you've seen them all. And, um, and the lake water, yeah, it's kind of dirty, Right? And you begin to think to yourself, well, I mean, that guy, that guy's kind of demanding, like that we come to his place and have all the fun there. What if we just took some of his stuff and we gathered together and did our own thing over here, right, at, at my house? We'll just do our own thing, all right? And imagine that throughout the neighborhood, groups of people began to kind of do their own thing and neglected the generosity and the friendship of the billionaire. And you begin to see, if you can grasp that, you begin to see what was happening then uh, as you reach the end of the Old Testament and what the prophets were warning the people. And eventually what happens is, right, at least in the case of the Bible, the billionaire moves out. And he allows vandals to come in, and they destroy his house, and they destroy the neighborhood. That's what happened in the Babylonian uh, destruction. And so... When we reach the time of Haggai, it's 520 B.C. The people have been back in the land for about 18 years. And when they first got back, they started to build the temple. I mean, they really, really wanted to. But then they met some opposition, right? The the people who were living there, their surrounding neighbors, even, even the authorities didn't really want it to happen. And so they just gave up. And for 18 years, the rubble just sits God's temple, while the rest of the city is being built up, God's temple just sits as a pile of rubble in the middle of it. And that's the situation that we find Haggai addressing. And here's the idea that I'm going to try to convey, and it's this, that when, that when God is at the center, right, then you're going to be in the right place. When God is in his rightful place, you will be in your rightful place, and that rightful place for God is at the center. So let's see what Haggai from the Lord has to say. In the second year, this is Haggai 1.1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You're going to hear that again and again. So here's, what, here's what's going on. There are three important leaders in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
All right, these are God's chosen people to lead the rest of God's people. So here you have the prophet speaking to the king and to the priest. All right? And here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's stop right there for a second. So you can, you can see what's happening. Right, You see the situation. God is central to these people. To his people, they have returned back to the land, but because of opposition, they just haven't rebuilt the temple. But what they have done is they've rebuilt their own houses. And it's not like they're living in grass huts, right? When it says they live in paneled houses, it means they built nice houses, right? So it's not like they're poor and destitute looking for building material. They've done okay. They've built nice places for themselves to live in, and yet they've left the house of the Lord a rubble pile, right? And what this shows us, right, and what, when we neglect the presence of the Lord, when we neglect the Lord, what it does is it reveals our priorities. And you see what the priorities of these people are, right? They want to build up their own stuff. They've busied themselves with their houses. But you can also see that they're frustrated, right, that... Even though they have food to eat, it's never satisfying. Even though they have things to drink, it never fills them up. And it, and it always seems like the money, there's, there's more month at the end of the money than there is money at the end of the month. I think I said that the right way. I heard Paul say that one time. Anyway, the money runs out too quick, right? When you put the money in the purse, it's like there's holes in there. It's gone. And so... They're, they're frustrated. Their efforts are frustrated. And, the one, and, and you can almost imagine, right, that they're walking down the street and they're like, what is going on? Like, I planted this many seeds, but only this many crops came out. What is wrong with the economy? What's going on? Why, why don't we ever have enough food? Why can't I never be satisfied? Why can't I buy the nice things that I want to buy? And they're like walking past the rubble pile of the temple. And God's like, right here. Look at me. Right? He says... The reason that you're frustrated, the reason that you brought much home and I blew it away, is because you've left my house in ruins. And really, what that, what that means, 
right? What the temple symbolizes is God's presence, that he desires to live with his people. And so what they have basically said by doing what they've been doing is we don't care. We don't care that God wants to live with us. We don't, really, we don't need God's presence. We would be just fine. You know, we're, we're making it. We're okay. Right? They're looking for answers and other things besides the Lord himself. The Lord is not at the center, and so um, that has revealed their real priorities. Right? They've basically said, we don't need God's presence. And so Haggai comes to them and says, think again. The one who is frustrating you, the one who is frustrating your crops, who is frustrating the economy, who is dragging it down, that's the Lord because he wants, he wants a right priority. He wants you to remember that he belongs at the center and not you. And so I would ask this. Does that ring true a little bit in your life? Do you find yourself frustrated? Do you find, right, that there's, there's holes in the purse? What, when you consider your ways, is the Lord's temple in ruins, right? Is God at the center of your existence? Um, right, so God's temple symbolized his presence, his desire to live with his people. And so when... When they neglect the presence, they reveal that they really don't care that God is there. But there's a second thing that I forgot to mention about temples, and it's this. How is it possible that a holy God can dwell in the midst of sinful people? Um, So the temple is about God's presence, but what is it that happens at the temple that makes that presence possible? Sacrifice, right? So temples mean presence. And temples and presence means sacrifice, that the people had to worship at the temple through sacrifice to secure God's presence. I want you to hold on to that because we're going to get to it later, but I just forgot to mention it. So, um, All right. So neglecting the Lord reveals our priorities, but thankfully that's not the end of the story. Look in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month. All right. So God is not central. Haggai preaches, and the people realize, right? The people are convicted. And what? So the first message that Haggai preached was, when you neglect the Lord, you reveal your priorities. The second one is this, that God's spirit enables our obedience. And that's what you see going on right here, right? The word is preached, the people are convicted, and they turn to the Lord in fear. And what is the Lord's message to them? I am with you. So here's what, here's what that means. It, building the temple was not like a, a, a good luck charm. It wasn't like a lucky rabbit's foot like... If the people had said, oh, okay, well, you just want us to build a temple. That's fine. We can throw a temple up. Can I go back to working on my house after that? 
right? We can get a temple up. That would be the lucky charm approach, right? As long as we have a temple, then God is in our pocket and we're doing just fine. But that's not, that's not how this works, right? The temple does not... If they built the temple, it didn't necessarily mean that, okay, then God will move back in. In fact, what we see is that God is already with them. His presence is already there. He's saying, I want you to acknowledge it. Take a step of faith and build the temple and acknowledge the fact that I am here, that I am your God, that I am in your midst, that I am working in you. And when the people do that, when they turn to the Lord because of the word... God says, I'm right here. And then what does he do? He fires them up to do the work, right? His spirit works in Zerubbabel the king, it works in Joshua the priest, and it works in the people to to obey, to build the temple. So his spirit enables our obedience. Does that make sense? It's not that our obedience guarantees his presence, but his presence fuels our obedience to step out in faith and do what ought to be done, right? And that's what we see in that second message, that God equips them for their service, right? The service that will bring him the most glory and will bring them the most good. God's greatest glory is our greatest good. So God is not central. God becomes central, and the people are renewed. The people are changed. And they get to work, and they start building the temple. And then, and then we have Haggai's third message, picking up at the end of verse 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Right? So, there were probably some in their midst who had seen the first temple. Right? They were kids. They were teenagers. And now they're in their 70s and their 80s. But as this new temple begins to be built... As they begin to build, they realize it's not good. It's not as big, it's not as great as Solomon's temple, right? And Ezra actually tells us that the old men and women who saw the first temple wept when the new temple was completed because the the former glory wasn't there, right? And so you can imagine, just as they even begin to build on the foundation, they realize what an inadequate house this is going to be that it doesn't measure up, and how discouraging that was. They realized how glorious the past was, and they were discouraged at how, at how inadequate the present is. Right? But Haggai says, don't be discouraged. The best is yet to come. Look in verse 4. As if to say, you're right, this temple is nothing compared to the old one. Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong. O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong. All you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you. There's that spirit-fueled obedience again. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
Paul would put it in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He is in us working to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Right? So they're looking at this tiny temple. Right? And, the, and they were confusing the grandness of the temple with the grandness of the Lord. And so if the temple is not very grand, it must mean that somehow God's, God's not all that grand. That if, if we can't build a much bigger, much more majestic, much better temple, then, well, maybe God's not the same anymore. And God says, don't be discouraged. Do not fear, right? I am with you. I am the same God who was with you when I set you free from Egypt a thousand years ago. It's still me. I'm still present. I'm still here. Don't worry about this tiny temple. I am the same God. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the best is yet to come. Here's what he says in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So what he says is, keep building because the glory that's to come will be so much better than even the best glory of the old days. Your best, the temple's best, is yet to come. Here's what's crazy about that promise. It never happened. That second temple was never as big or as grand as Solomon's first temple. Right? It never saw the glory Right? When, when Solomon finished his temple and he sacrificed tons of animals, right? God's glory cloud moved into the temple and it was so thick and so terrifying that it pushed all the priests out. God moved in and you knew it. As far as we know, God's glory never moved in to the second house. So what was he talking about? Well, God's glory did come into that temple. 520 years later, as an eight-day-old baby boy named Jesus. And God's glory would come again and again to that temple to teach, to convict, to lead. Right? If you go to John chapter 1, do you see how John describes Jesus John 1:14 and the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt literally tabernacled lived among us the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father Jesus is the promise of God's presence in your midst Jesus is the fulfillment of I will be with you Jesus is what the temple was pointing to all along. Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh. In chapter 2, 
Jesus would actually describe himself as the temple, right? When he says, if you tear this temple down, I will raise it up in three days. And they were confused. and like, how can you build a temple in three days? He's talking about himself, right? And the disciples didn't understand till later. So Jesus is the presence of the Lord in our midst. But do you remember that second aspect of the temple? That thing that has to happen at a temple in order to secure God's presence? Sacrifices? Well, Jesus is that too. Jesus is the last sacrifice. Right? And if you remember, uh, in Mark 15, when Jesus is sacrificed outside of the temple, he says, it is finished. What's finished? This long war between sin and holiness. The endless blood of all these sacrifices. It's finished. And when Jesus cries out his last, what happens? The earth shakes. And what happens in the temple? The curtain that separated the holy of holies, from, that separated God's holiness from the rest of the world, that curtain is torn, not from bottom to top, not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth, from top to bottom, Right? Jesus is the presence of God in the temple, and he is the sacrifice of God that opens the temple. Jesus is the temple. He is the promise of Haggai, but that's not all. Turn to 1 Corinthians, let's let's skip that, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2. First Peter 2, chapter 4. Peter says this, As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are the temple. If you belong to Jesus, right? Peter says, when you come to Jesus, He is the the foundation stone. He is the cornerstone. And when you come to Him, you become living stones. So when you come to the living stone, you become living stones, and you're built on top of Him as a what? As His house. As the temple. Right? Right? Continue, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friend, if you are in Jesus, now you too are the temple. Right? Because the design all along was that God's glory would fill the earth. 
It cannot fill the earth from a building in the Middle East. But it can fill the earth if it dwells in you. You you are God's presence to your spouse, to your children, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. You are the temple. You are that tangible, real sense that God wants to live with people. And in case you hear that as this unimaginable burden, I want you to remember, I want to remind you of what Peter says. You are not the message. Jesus is the message, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so you are to be set apart. You are to be holy, a people for his own possession, but so that you may proclaim what? Your own excellencies? No. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. When you are the temple, you proclaim the excellency of God, the cornerstone, the one. Listen, you were darkness. Me, I'm darkness, okay? That's what we were when we were not a people. But now it's as if God has picked us up from the rubble heap and has made us smooth and polished and is building us Together, you are a living stone in God's temple. And that, may, that means you are being built up so that you can proclaim the excellencies of a God who takes people out of darkness and brings them into light. That's what your function is, as the temple of God. Haggai 2.9. You don't have to go back there if you want to. Let's, I'll close with this. At the end of Haggai 2.9, at the end of this future look, Haggai says this, In this place, I will give peace. In this future glorious temple, there will be peace. There will be shalom, right? And that, and that Hebrew word means that all is right. All is right between God and man. All is right between man and man, right? The people in Haggai's day, they did not know peace. Their efforts were frustrated. Their relationship with God was tenuous. Everything, things weren't right. But God says that in the new temple, I will give peace. Do you know whose blood speaks peace? Jesus's. In Jesus, we finally have the peace that we have longed for for so long. Right? The peace that you have been looking for, it's in the new temple. It's in Jesus himself. And so I would ask, do you have peace? And if not, come to the temple. Come to Jesus. And you will find it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this word that reminds us to come back, to come back to the center, to not be discouraged because you are in our midst, and to find peace in your presence. Lord, I pray that we would know it, and that as... And that as your 
living stones, your living temple, we would proclaim the excellencies of you. You who have called us out of darkness into light. That we would be your people because we have received your mercy. Help us to stand in awe of you and to invite others to come to the true temple, even Jesus.